0: Welcome back to Streaming Banshees, your TV book club on the internet. This is Beep. You can find me at Beepsplain on Twitter, and I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey there! You can find me on Twitter at A, capital check. You can also reach us on our website, StreamingBanshees.com, where you will find all sorts of goodies, including episodes, transcripts, and articles from us and some super smart people that write about different shows. So today's podcast is about Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha Episode 2. Just a reminder, we are a re-watch podcast, so spoilers abound. Please make sure that you have finished watching the series before you listen to these episodes, because we don't want to spoil you. It's great to see it all together the first time, but come back your second time around and we'd love to chat with you. So let's dive into Episode 2.
1: All right. So before we dive into specific scenes, I wanted to talk about some big picture themes of the episode first. And the first time I watched episode two, it reminded me, and we mentioned Jane Austen in the last podcast, but it specifically reminded me of Emma. And for those of you who have read Emma, if I just say the Miss Bates scene, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. But for those who have not, Emma is a protagonist of Jane Austen's book. She is probably the most complex. And Jane Austen at one point said something to the effect of maybe only I will like her. But she has a scene where Emma is, you know, sort of the upper class person in the town. She is at a picnic with a bunch of other people from her village. And the sort of older, single lady whose life is sort of maybe not turned out what she wanted to be and, and has far less in income and is rather poor, as, especially as compared to Emma, who's sort of the wealthiest person in town, Emma insults her in front of everyone in the village. And it is sort of like a big turning point in her character arc and her future love interest, Mr. Knightley, who is at that point her friend has sort of this famous dressing down of saying, badly done, Emma, badly done. And the remainder of the novel is Emma sort of coming out of that and realizing sort of what she needs to atone for and making amends with Miss Bates. And it's sort of the turning point of her arc. And in this one, obviously, what I'm thinking of is Haitian's Unintentional insulting of O Yoon in front of the entire village, and then her later conversations with Chief Hong, and sort of the turning point in her arc where she starts to sort of make connections with her community after the sort of nadir of her relationship <laughs> with the community. So that was sort of my first watch impression of the episode beep you haven't read emma right do you have anything
0: i have not you are the the master of period pieces <laughs> um or should i say in this case i guess they weren't period pieces it was literally just what it was <laughs> written but that is that is not my specialty so i shall defer to you on <laughs> all matters austin
1: yeah and i mean particularly it is it is a scene the scene in emma the picnic scene with Miss Bates, just like Heijin being over the open mic, are scenes that make you wince. And it's not just the public humiliation, it is kicking someone when they're down. Look, not only insulting someone, but somebody who thinks basically that, that, that what's built into that is that somebody thinks they're better than somebody else instead of having empathy and compassion. And so that that's sort of like that this scene where you're and it's still, you know, and that's that's the heroine of the story who you still want to root for. But it's a real nadir in her character arc. And it's kind of like that character at their worst. And so there's so much about the structure of that scene and sort of the public humiliation of Yoon and how badly Heijin feels about it afterwards and her interactions with Chief Hong that anyone who is I anyone who's reading Emma, I'm just in my head. I'm like, oh, my God, this is like the Miss Spade scene. <laughs> That all of that is still there, and we will get into it. But on second watch, now that we know everything that Chief Hong feels guilty about, and we have sort of the first line of this episode is, we all have moments that we regret in life. Mm -hmm. And that he is living his life essentially in a perpetual state of atonement. And it it, it just brings this added layer and depth to every time Chief Hong is having a conversation with Hei Zhen about making mistakes or how to atone for them, where he is speaking from a very deep place of personal experience. And so it's almost like on First Watch, you think that this whole episode is just about Hei Zhen having to learn how to Be a member of this community and sincerely apologize and connect with people. But then you realize that it's basically this almost little, for lack of a better word, like parable or preview Mm -hmm. for what is really going on long term with Chief Hong and how he's living his life, how he is stuck in this state of perpetual atonement, that, that he's going to eventually need to out loud ask Gamri for permission. Am I allowed to live my own life? Like, Mm -hmm. basically, is it enough? And there's a quote that is at the end of the episode, but I just want to bring it up now because I think it really frames everything that happens with many of the characters, not only in this episode, but throughout the series, talking about sort of things that you regret and how do you atone for things? How do you move on from these, these moments in life that you regret? The quote that... Shin Ha'un un chooses from Walden that Chief Hong is reading on the rocks at the end, the snippet that we see on the screen is this line that's translated, at least in the English subtitles, as the fruits and flowers of the people. And it comes from Walden. The full quote is, I would not subtract anything from the praise that is due to philanthropy, but merely demand justice for all who by their lives and works are a blessing to mankind. And then he goes on to say, I want the flower and fruit of a man, that some fragrance be wasted over from him to me, and some ripeness, flavor, our intercourse. His goodness must not be a partial and transitory act, but a constant superfluity, which costs him nothing and of which he is unconscious. And so interpreting interpreting sort of what Thoreau is trying to say about, you know, he's talking about philanthropy and he's he's talking about people who, you know, give away a lot of money and whether that is, in essence, you know, as good at act as those who can't. And what writer Christelle Marie Pouhanis wrote in the journal The Quarter Life Experiment, she says Thoreau, quote, only asks that the intentions be pure and that the acts of charity be true. He believes that goodness should not be transitory or incomplete, rather, that the do gooder would also spend himself alongside his money and would persevere even after public or private discouragements. I find that quote not only so applicable to the journey Haitian goes on in this episode, for example, the sort of emptiness of bringing the rice cakes by, as opposed to later her far more sincere sitting as, s- sitting as an equal at a town meeting or listening to Yun's music and sincerely apologizing to him, but also how Chief Hong lives in a constant state of doing good acts and spending of himself for everyone in the town as sort of this atonement for what he feels guilty about with the security guards attempted suicide and his friend dying.
0: Yeah, it, specifically what you're mentioning with the rice cakes, it it's not that it's a bad gesture. It just goes along with what this says. It's disingenuous. She's doing it out of guilt and to promote her business. There's no genuine contrition there. Mm, there rice. is simply how do I get out of this situation? Whereas I feel like as it goes on, so initially she obviously, like, she feels bad for herself. Like, I got busted. That was not a good thing. But as the episode goes on and she starts to see the interactions of other people, she starts to understand how she has harmed them by her words, not just in the sense of, oops, I'm I'm shamed and I got caught.
1: Right, right. Yeah, it exactly. There's a balance, right? I mean, she is very she is punished by the town, quite publicly. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty it is pretty brutal backlash. And just thinking forward to some of the brutal and in some cases unfair blame that will be laid at Chief Hong's feet by both his friend's widow the wife of the security guard, I just wanted to throw out another quote from Thoreau to have in the back of our mind. Quote, Public opinion is a weak tyrant compared with our own private opinion. What a man thinks of himself, that is which determines or rather indicates his fate. End quote. And that, you know, Haitian goes through a, a whole journey of sort of processing her her own self-recrimination the recriminations of others and coming out on the other side of it and offering you know sincere contrition and making amends with with Chief Hong's help but but i think that also is really interesting when we when we think about the larger backdrop of this story that this episode is previewing in sort of just you know a, a much smaller act that needs to be made, uh, that, that amends need to be made. But what people thought about what Chief Hong did, what they understood about it that was true or wasn't true, what they blamed him for, what, he, what what blame should he accept and make amends for, and what guilt does he need to let go of in order to determine, in Thoreau's words, determine his own fate, which is the journey he's going on, right? Like, so many of the characters in Gun are struggling with how do i move on from the past whether it's something i lost for many people it's it's a dream that that wasn't that wasn't attained whether that's a dream of a marriage or a dream of a music career or what you thought your life was going to be as, as an investment banker in soul it, that i think that's such an interesting way to think about balancing you know offering sincere contrition But also that journey you need to go on for yourself to to
0: forgive yourself and also sort of say, like, when is enough? Right. And to speak, in fact, back to your point on Walden and and his thoughts on philanthropy, that's something that I've gone through that I've witnessed in my life very specifically as my great grandmother came to a place in her life, as, as many elderly people do where she needed to live with someone else. She needed to be taken care of. And she had two children, my grandfather and my great aunt. One of them, my grandfather and my grandmother, they worked and they were relatively well off. So the way that they could contribute to her overall daily constant needs was to pay for things to contribute to her medical bills, to split things, you know, that she needed purchased for herself versus my great aunt stayed at home. And while they certainly got by just fine, did not, nec- did not necessarily have a whole lot of extra funds. But what she did have was time. And she gave of herself. She cooked for my grandmother. She cleaned for her. She took care of her. And you look at those two things, and the issue is that they work together. Every portion is needed. And in my view, and even in my family's view, those things were equal. You gave money, I couldn't give money, but I gave time. And therefore, this person is well taken care of. Yeah. And I just always think about that how they're, you can't compare them directly. But sometimes one, you know, sometimes time is worth more than money. And sometimes they just need to work together to make sure that that someone is well taken care of.
1: Right. And I I was noticing I, I was noticing in this episode how much Chief Hong gives to other people. And we should probably note it every time it comes up. And not only, you know, and he's only doing it. Sometimes he's doing it for free, such as taking the photos. Other times he's doing it purely for minimum wage. But, he, you know, he transforms Heijin's apartment and her place of business, like with his own hands. And and how much he or whether it is going to talk to Oyun after he is upset or going out of his way to save Heijin's business by guiding her when she is really floundering. <laughs> Every step of the way and how to make amends and what does she need to do to succeed in this community so that her business doesn't go under, he's constantly offering of himself. And so I've, I find it that that quote from Walden that Shin that Shinhei un chooses, and she said that she intentionally chose to put the book, you know, explicitly... <laughs> In Chief Hong's hands. And it is the final image of this episode to give us a clue, not only to who he is, but why he does the things that he does.
0: Absolutely. What I find fascinating about him, and I'm not sure that this has ever been brought up specifically in this way. In fact, I just thought of it. He certainly gives of his time, he gives of himself. He obviously, like you said, he works for minimum wage. That is by his own insistence, many ways as a punishment. To himself, he's doing that atonement. Mm -hmm. But in that same way, he's actually giving money to people, if that makes sense. Because he's saving them money for all of the professional work that he could be doing. So in in his own way, he's actually giving both.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when he offers to remodel Haitian's business for minimum wage, I was like, are you kidding me? Right? Like, what a joke. That's... (laughs) I mean, that is not a thing. Yeah. For seven dollars an hour to completely remodel. Right. So he gives of himself in acts constantly. And he is giving money, right? Like so, I mean, every everything that he does in this episode from serving as a real estate agent <laughs> to to remodeling to being a photographer to working in the cafe. Anything that is above minimum wage, which almost all of those jobs would normally be paid above minimum wage, except for perhaps working at the cafe. Although, Oh, Yoon has made clear, dude, I'd like to give you a raise. And mm-hmm. he's just like, I like things the way that they are. So, all of that is literal acts that are gifts to people
0: over and above their worth that is above minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. So, I mean, my, big picture thought on this episode the way that I kind of looked at it is it's it's almost a story within a story because as you mentioned we don't even know what we're watching necessarily from Chief Hong's perspective we're getting the idea of kind of who he is but we don't get the why but I love with the obvious theme of regret in this episode that we meet so many of the other villagers because we have this expanse of not only who is involved in everything, but they're not just side players. The the characters start to be realized. We learn things about them. We learn about, you know, divorce. And you can just tell you there's the loss of a child. And it's not even discussed, but you can immediately tell. And I think every time a villager is added, every time that the community grows from our perspective, it's just... Contributing to the full realization of the character that is Gonjin itself, and they did just an amazing job of this episode. is very efficient to show we're all a group. This is a community, but each and every person has a part to play in it, and they're all bringing with them a past, and they're all bringing with them regrets and things they struggle with, and lives, un- you know, lives underneath that we don't necessarily know anything about.
1: Yeah. So let's jump into that opening montage. Again, we we have this contemplative line about regret. We all have moments in life that we regret and it's Hei Jin, voice voicing the narration, but it opens with another romanticist montage of of the beauty of Gyeongjin, the water, the sunrise, again firmly grounding us in this place. And then we see each of these characters in the village in succession, each of them holding an object that represents their personal past regret. So it's almost like a teaser for every mystery that Shin Ha-Un is promising us. like, And I know that there's, quote unquote, three mysteries of Ganjin, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who won the lottery? Why did they get divorced? And what happened to Chief Hong for those years? But, but each of these objects represents a past regret that in some future episode we are going to learn about. And I was thinking about it. I was like, man, as you watch this montage, each of these objects, like to borrow a phrase from Chief Hong, they go as deep as Lake Baikal. Right like the stories as you go through you've got Hajin holding the divorce decree
0: mm-hmm.
1: that is supposedly by mutual consent you have Nam Suk in her daughter's room which doesn't look like she's changed a thing since her daughter's died mm-hmm. holding the sailor moon wand which her daughter held up until her last moments and was the object that she was left with in an empty hospital bed. You have O-Yoon holding his second album, Demo Tape, which I think is so interestingly called The End and the Beginning. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of, not only in this episode, but this series as a whole, there are a lot of characters you know, when you talk about moments of regret, some for some, it's also letting go of past dreams and embracing new ones. So I find that title, the end and the beginning, right? Perhaps letting go of some things, embracing new things. So interesting.
0: Well, it's also an indication. I mean, I look at, I specifically look at that title in context with this episode, kind of like the idea of the end of one life and having to start over. Mm-hmm. Because specifically, and I'll, I'll leave Chief Hong out of this for a moment just because there's a little more complex things going on. But when you talk about Ha Jung, when you talk about Nam Suk, when you talk about Oh Yoon, the endings were not their fault. Yeah, or choice. Right. So they're holding on to kind of this regret of things that occurred, which they could not have foreseen. Nor changed. And in a way, that is the hardest kind of starting over when you just have to. And it's so difficult to watch them, you know, having everyone's punishing themselves in a way. And oftentimes that seems to be for things that they didn't even really do.
1: Yeah. Or, or they're, or they're stuck. And and in some they're stuck in sort of un, you know, some not necessarily destructive or unhealthy patterns, but you know, Oh Yoon really being stuck in the past, and as he says, you know, later on in the episode, like I'm just I can't live just constantly re- reminiscing, or yeah. or, or Nam Suk, just, you know, the healthy things that she does is reaching out to Juri and cultivating that relationship with, you know. Namsuk has lost a child and Juri lost her mother. And that's that is a wonderful way to channel your grief and all of the charity work that she does to donate in her daughter's memory, going around and gossiping and being obsessed about everybody else's life.
0: That could be the not so healthy aspect yeah. of becoming the town gossip. Yeah. And everyone's business. <laughs> She's the antithesis to Haitians, you know mind my own business and don't worry, <laughs> but just focus on myself. Don't worry about anyone else. Namsuk is like, no, no, I think I'll do the opposite. So I don't have to think about my own stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, everyone has but again, because even, even these secondary, like supporting characters are three dimensional human beings that have positive things that they do and also less constructive <laughs> things. And, you know, like, For, you know, Ha Zhang liked humans. Yeah, like human beings, right? Like Ha Zhang is this like pillar of her community and such a wonderful mother. But she buried this pain of what she overheard her husband say. And it often comes out, you know, speaking rather caustically or harsh to him or as we'll get later on yelling about a pair of socks on the floor instead of saying out loud what's actually bothering her, right? right? So so there's just, I mean, everyone, I mean, to your point, everyone is just so fully realized and it's just such masterful storytelling because this opening montage, every object is like a promise that Shin ha as a writer is making to the audience. Here are all of these stories and you're going to get to the end of my story and you're going to know all of it. And it's mm-hmm. like every pro- everything is paid off. And that, you know, you and I have been watching TV and talking about it for long enough to know that that is not always the case. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So this montage is like... Some people are very good at setup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so satisfying to watch this, to be like, oh, I, I, I'm going to know why every one of those objects is important. Of course, leading to the final one, which is the black suit hanging in Chief Hong's closet which of course we now know is the suit that his young and his wife bought for him at you know sort of his first his first trip to a department store first buying you know I, all, any of us who have sort of worked i mean i re- i still remember my first suit that i wore like to to interviews right yeah
0: that you need for a job or
1: yeah it's like such a rite of passage right and they became his new family. And it it also, of course, is symbolic of when he had a very different career and a very different life and represents a life of, I mean, if he won't accept profit now and gives away the things that he does, his career as an investment banker was the exact opposite. It was all about taking risk and all about profit. And as we mentioned last podcast, playing with other people's money to Disastrous effect mm-hmm. when when that stock crashed, and struggling with how much of that was his fault. How much how much fault does he bear with respect to the risk that the security guard took, and how he later attempted to take his own life? His own reaction to that how he how he was almost going to drive, and that is why his young got in the car, and he ended up being in the driver's seat for that accident. Right. It's this struggle he has with what are random acts, right? Like random things that happen in life. A grandfather having a heart attack, a stock market crashing, a truck crashing into a car. How much does he bear the blame for that? And that is why he is stuck in this pattern of living in that he does not live for himself.
0: Mm -mm. Right? Like. And it appears that that is likely the only piece of his wardrobe that he kept from Seoul.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's such beautiful it it's such beautiful storytelling to have a symbol of the past stuck in the back of your closet and struggle with whether or not to throw it away, Mm -hmm. what to do with it do I throw it away? Do I put it back in the closet to ultimately putting it back on to truly face your past?
0: You know, my initial assumption of that code, and I'm just thinking about now how this made no sense. My immediate assumption was that it was the suit he wore to his grandfather's funeral. mm -hmm. And now I'm looking at it going, nope, that's for an adult. (laughs) Like I forgot how long ago that was.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, right, right. But I believe he wears it to his friend's funeral and he wears it to face his widow. And it is quite, you know, it's quite a somber suit and it is a contrast to the new, you know, the new suit that Heijin will buy for him and that he will wear to take his wedding photos, which is the new, you know, he puts on the old to ultimately face his past Mm -hmm. and then he will put on the new to begin his future. And that will be the closing image of the series of Chief Hong in his new suit, hand-in-hand hand with Hei Zhen, running towards his future. And so it's just beautiful, beautiful symbolism and storytelling and how these objects represent the past, old dreams, old, old pain and losses and regret, and how the new objects then, you know, What he puts on his body, what he takes off, what he puts back on.
0: It's just such wonderful storytelling. The items in the show are not simply props. There's a purpose for each one that is shown being close to somebody. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that takes us to... This this episode, you know, it reminds me of all the old Catherine Hepburn movies where she's going back and forth with Cary Grant or Spencer Tracy. Just this frenemies. They can't, you know, Haitian and Chief Hong are like in orbit around each other. Mm-hmm. And they are constantly needling each other. And yet there is this like gravitational force. But this idea of, right? magnets polarity opposites repelling each other which is we're in we're in full like i mean they play with a lot of romantic tropes in this episode while also i mean it's it's we're like this episode is like peak frenemies oh <laughs> slow burn and there's a lot of like little grabbing of arms and hands over hands where where you know the show's signaling to the audience and winking and be like yeah yeah you know what this is about when they are walking through her potential place of business and you're walking through the apartment i don't know if being a real estate agent is chief hong's perhaps <laughs> best the best he is at at his jobs i mean he he absolutely knows how to try and sell the wallpaper <laughs> Isn't it a tropical appeal? It'll put you on a flowery path. I mean, he's, he's doing his best as a salesman. But but I mean, he basically is just like, yeah, it's got this, it's got that. It's your only option. Next. Yeah, get out. <laughs> <laughs> Beep, it is one of your favorite moments of the show. So please talk to me about Chief Hong's big flex moment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I could not love this more, especially so early in a show, the way it's done, the music playing behind it. It is just, it's not what you expect. You know, he's like, oh, I can do that for minimum wage too. And it just seems like he's throwing out all these casual things. But the certifications that fall out of that man's wallet, (laughs) by the way, I can do everything. (laughs) I mean, and it also shows how intelligent he is but also how restless he is mm. in his mind that he just has to keep acquiring these skills one for himself i'm sure you know and it helps to keep your mind busy but i'm sure that he also chooses the one he chooses the ones that he does because they're going to help people the most in his area and it's what they need I doubt he had, you know, that he's going off and getting web certifications (laughs) on how to build a website. Like he's doing things that are practical for the area which he's serving.
1: Yeah, I mean, those certifications we will learn run not only from every aspect of of construction and plumbing, but we will, you know, in the future we will learn it will include origami, plating fruit, He's a barista. I mean, he he literally has basically <laughs> the most well-rounded yet also eclectic collection of skills.
0: Now, if only he had certified as a midwife, <laughs> 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 we might be in a different position.
1: Well, we gotta let we have to let Hazen save the day sometimes too. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I you know it it is. You're right, Beep. It is. It is such. It, 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 there's so many layers to how this. There's the really fun. He when we say he's a jack of all trades, we mean all trades. Oh sure. <laughs> and and that he's a genius, and that he's good at many, many, many things. So why, if you're good at so many things and you have that flexibility, why would you want to limit yourself to doing one task your whole life, like so many of us do,
0: right? Especially if the reason that you choose your your path is money. But he's getting paid the same thing for everything, so why wouldn't he, you know, mix it up? Right, yeah. But also, that restlessness
1: is teased in this episode when he pulls an all-nighter to remodel Heijen's office and is exhausted. And, and we will later learn it's because he's plagued by nightmares. And the only times that we see him get... Rest and wake up in the morning instead of a nightmare are the two times that he wakes up by her side. And so that restlessness goes to this pattern that he is stuck in of living in this like perpetual state of atonement that we talked about at, at the beginning of the podcast because he can't live for himself. And so you're right, all of these skills that he picks up is so that he can be of service, offering. To go back to Thoreau, fruits and flowers of himself to everyone else, but you know, so that so there's so many layers to it, right? But just the comedic, I'll consider myself
0: hired. Oh, oh, that's the line of the episode,
1: and then he just walks away with her mouth hanging open as he like runs his hand through his hair. I mean, it is such a ridiculous flex that. You have to calibrate that so carefully, right? Because it's because she's been talking down to him the whole episode that this doesn't seem that, that the audience is like fist pumping when he's basically like, yeah, I'll consider myself hired. And it is it is a little bit cocky, but it's because she's been talking down to him the whole episode, right? Like he said nothing when they were in the apartment. He's like, okay, well, tell me your style. And she's like, oh, well, you wouldn't know anything about it, right? Spanish tile and Danish light fixtures and picking the most sophisticated, worldly, you know. Everything's imported (laughs) from abroad, right? And she's acting like he couldn't possibly know what she's talking about because he's just some country bumpkin. Meanwhile, later on, we're going to, he's actually probably even more worldly than Haitian. And he's certified in all of the things that she is talking about, but she's talking down to him like he couldn't possibly know about it, which is what sets up this flex to be such a fist pumping moment. And you're like, yep. That was cocky walking away, and I'm totally with you, Chief Hong. You showed her, (laughs) you know? Yep.
0: She's making a lot of assumptions about people, and especially him, over and over and over. She won't seem to let herself accept his role in, in the community and all the things he can do. She just kind of sees him as, you know, a weirdo.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she's she's making a lot of, as you said, sort of snap judgments about everyone in the town, including him. And he doesn't correct her as she talks down to him. He kind of like waits and
0: bides his time and sort of, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Well, and we know we know that a lot of her assumption would come from the fact that She assumes if he were able to leave this place, he would have.
1: Oh, yeah. And it also totally goes to class. Mm -hmm. She's assuming she's, I mean, you know, Haitian is a very intelligent person. And so I think there's, there's all these things that are tied up together, right, about class and status, right? So when she finds out that he's a graduate of the most prestigious university in the country, of course that goes toward deepening the mystery. Okay, then why the hell are you living here? Mm-hmm. But but also when he does all the math problems for her, it's also, oh my, like we are, we are, are my, she finds it intellectually stimulating and attractive that he's smart. Now that is because you want a partner that you can be, be your intellectual equal and you can spar with. And I don't think that that is necessarily like classist. I think it's just wanting somebody that you find intellectually stimulating, right? And that that's attractive. That that's attractive. You know, the fact that he's doing all these math problems on the table is attractive to her. But there's also all of the class and societal expectations that Heijin is going to have to grapple with, with bo- that are both the product of how she was treated at university, but also having to put aside what will my friends think about this guy who's my boyfriend or if I stay here in the small town running a clinic instead of returning to Seoul as most of the people who went to my university or I graduated with would do. So right. all of it's wrapped up and there's like good things about it, about why she's so attracted to him because he's so smart, but she's also going to unpack what are other people's
0: expectations. Well, since we know too from the epilogue here that he's been drawn to her from the very beginning. And obviously there's some sort of an attraction there. I think that's part of why he's so standoffish from the very beginning It is no matter what she would have done, he would have tended to be that way. It's only amplified because of her actions, because he's living in this world, you know, we've already said of atonement. He doesn't believe he deserves to love, but she makes him feel something. Mm, so he's like "Mm, no i better stay away from that with a 10-foot pole
1: but he can't so the
0: way it's impossible
1: right so the way he deals with it is by this is the beginning of doing things for her acts helping her save her business or restoring her shoes or all of the things constantly he can't help himself and he expresses how he feels through acts yet always trying to keep her at an emotional arm's length and it's you know until until he finally until she finally pushes him to a breaking point mid-confession scene where he literally just can't help it anymore you know so so yeah it's just so because he is as helpful as he is and as much as he If you just think about everything he does for Hye in this episode, from making her home beautiful at a place that she would like to live, to transforming her office to a place that she walks in and she's like, spell, you know, like, wow, he did a really great job. This is amazing, you know? to saving her business by not only guiding her through all of these acts of contrition, but also putting his credibility and his reputation with his community on the line by recommending to them that they should go see her at her office. All of those things are all of these things that he does for her, while in his personal interactions with her, being quite still standoffish. Like, she hasn't chipped away at those walls yet.
0: Sure, his actions come in stark contrast to him mocking her about the office being near the
1: mountains. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you know, he's just like, he's like, wow, you're exhausting. She's like, no, I'm thorough, right? There's all these like back and forths of, you know, right now they're in the magnets are turned upside down and they're bouncing off of each other until they flip. (laughs) Yeah.
0: She's thorough, but he's thorough.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yes! No, don't be. Yes, I love that <laughs> pun. All right. So that takes us to <laughs> when he shows up at her house at night. And I love it because, man, Chief Hong has a lot of jobs that, you know, somehow lead him to Haitian's house at night. <laughs> 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 but yeah, but again, just like the last episode, you know, we're obviously going to get the epilogue that re- reveals that he's the little boy, not only in the photograph that she sees and is drawn to, but is re- is played a part in her most cherished photo with her family. Again, they cut from Hei putting the frame on her desk to the doorbell then ringing. And again, the boy who made her smile is the one that's at the door. So mm-hmm. there, again, there's all these like editing clues as they're building up that reveal. This scene is has so many callbacks that I mean you know we we marvel a lot at what Shen Haun has done sort of big picture thematically, but there's so many things that come back from this one kind of annoyed at each other where you know I think it's interesting that you know that line you uh doth protest too much mm-hmm. like. When they figure out that he's older than her, and so he's like, don't you dare call me Opa, which is, (laughs) you know, a terminology that has a lot of different meanings, but basically don't show me affection. And they have like goosebumps and they're like, ew. And you're like, guys, you really are talking about it way too much.
0: But he's He's our middle schoolers level, okay. Yeah,
1: but he's also gonna go on a whole journey with that term because boy, is he gonna be thrilled by when she calls him that in front of her city friends. (laughs) But they will they will circle back to it at the end of still being like Nat, you just can't call me that. (laughs) So but what I love about the passcode to her house. is here is something where you have on like on one level, his birthday is the passcode to his house. He puts it in just kind of like that's the first thing that comes to mind for hers. What we will learn later on and will be a clue for the audience as to how Haitian is feeling under the surface is she will never change the passcode to her door. Mm-hmm. And when she's drunk, she will be Yelling it out loud because she she is still using his birthday as 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 the passcode to her own door. Like she never changes it, even even as like weirded out as she as it is when he leaves. She never changes it. She could have immediately changed it. She doesn't.
0: I love that in her surprise. She is so mortified by what that is. She tries to just give it back to him as if she could get in the door without. And <laughs> he's, he's like, like, "Um, you need it to change it." Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Wait, no. I'm smart. I get it.
1: <laughs> yeah, but then, but then you have this whole layer to it. That later on in the show. Chief Hong is going to read this poem entitled Doorkeeper. And we talked about two podcasts ago about how Chief Hong's house, his quote unquote cabin, is both a physical place and a emotional state of being for mm-hmm. him. And he gives her the passcode. Heijin's going to go on a whole journey when it comes to knocking on his door. She's going to go from trying to leave something at his door without knocking on it to knocking on it when he is sick, to someday using that passcode to just walk into his house to sit and be with him and hear his story. Mm -hmm. And so Shen Ha'un is just playing with all of these, all of this symbolism and all these metaphors about doors, about who has the passcode to doors, but also, you know, both literally physically and also emotionally. And, and entering someone's sort of inner inner life and sitting there and being with them in their pain and hearing their and, and sitting with them in their grief and somebody letting you do that. And so there's so much meaning behind Hatian holding on to that passcode before she even really has the, the words or is conscious of how she's feeling to someday then using it, To walk through the quote-unquote doorkeeper and sit with Chief Hong. Stop.
0: What? (laughs) Stop. It's too much.
1: It's too much. I mean, the writing is just so brilliant. I think it's so interesting the way when Heijin walks through the town and notices the portrait at the photography store of little boy, Dushik, and his grandfather. And she's drawn to what she calls sort of like a mischievous smile. We, not only this flashback that we see at the end of this episode, but we know that she went back after that meeting on the beach and drew pictures of that day. And as a little girl, like, was like, oh, I'm the star princess. And then he's the prince of the sea, right? And gives this kind of narrative, like a child's narrative, almost as if it's like a fairy tale moment that she had. And so even though she doesn't, I mean, Chief Hong will remember that when he sees the photograph and make that connection before she does. But I think it's interesting that sort of like in the recesses of her mind, there's something about that little boy
0: and that picture of that little boy that draws her in. Oh, absolutely. And it's just like you said, the recesses. She remembers him without remembering him or really even acknowledging or or blatantly realizing that she should.
1: Yeah. So that, I mean, that takes us to... You know, she's complaining, like, how long is this job going to take? And he's basically like, whatever, how long it takes. But then he goes and pulls an all-nighter, <laughs> which, you know, again, we know has many layers to it. He's hardworking. He's constantly giving of himself to her. But he also has nightmares
0: and can't sleep and is seeing a therapist and taking medication yeah. for it. And realistically, even an all-nighter is not long enough. But I'm going to give it to them because it's adorable. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but he he is... Walking back to his house, like dead on his feet, and yet the way he lights up when he sees Gamre and the grandmothers, it just makes my heart explode. (laughs) Like he just basically goes from, oh my God, I'm going to fall over, I'm so tired, to, oh my God, you're here, and this is the best thing that's happened to me all day. (laughs)
0: Everyone has adopted him. And the same in reverse. He has also adopted all of them, I feel like, as his his grandmothers, even though Gamry is obviously very special.
1: Yeah. And so basically, you know, they're day drinking this wine that he's, this rice wine that he's made and he's like carving. You're like, oh, my God, this guy also makes soap. Of course he does. <laughs> of course he does. But I love that basically Gamry is bragging about him the way a mother or grandmother does about a son or grandson. She's like, of course he made the wine. Is there anything he can't do apart from finding a wife?
0: (laughs) Listen, you haven't had to experience this because you you were married earlier. But as someone a little older, even than him, I will say that is a very and they're doing it in a jesting way, and that's funny. That is not a fun conversation for people to just randomly bring up.
1: No, but it's such a mom or grandmother move. But what I think is actually, though, one of the layers to it, though, on Rewatch is she is worried about him being alone Mm -hmm. and not living. You know, she she when when the town (laughs) busts them, when they're when the town basically is like, yeah, we knew you were dating. Gamri says, basically, my final wish, the final thing I have been hoping for has been granted. Mm. And you kind of have a sense that, and I don't want to read too much into it, but I don't think it's a coincidence that Gamri leaves this world once she knows that her adopted son, grandson, is going to be okay and not be alone.
0: Yeah, I mean certainly from a writing standpoint, but there there is that in real life too where people, you know, are especially getting towards the end of their lives and they'd fight harder to stay alive if there's something they that you know they're still hanging on to.
1: Yeah, and there's a, there's going to be future callbacks to this to this scene. Chief Hong one day will be in this yard cutting soap alone. Mm-hmm. No doubt remembering how he used to do this for Gamri, and that is when Heijin will come to his house and he will eventually read, you know, a few moments later, Gamri's letter and and finally grieve for her. But also, when the town is celebrating Heijin and Chief Hong taking their wedding photos, her friends will shout up to the sky, See, Gamri? Uh, Chief Hong is getting married, you know, mm-hmm. like in celebration. So there's just, you know, I'm going to yell about the writing 80,000 times during this sure. podcast. But this scene, it it tells us so much about, I mean, this is really, I think, our first, Chief Hong was like so sweet in the last episode. But this, this scene, even though it seems sort of like just kind of a grandmother figure, kind of ribbing the single person in their 30s, there's deeper layers to it. This little boy that she used to feed has been alone since he was a teenager. And she is worried that when she's gone, he's going to be alone again. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I always wonder about is how much Chief Hong, when he came back to Gonjin, told Gamry, And I'm not really... I'm not really, and, and I and I don't think it's a it's a it's a question that necessarily needed to be answered. It's just it's clear, either they have had more conversations than he has with anyone else in the town, or she simply knows him the best of right. everyone in town. Because when her friend picks up that suit, which Chief Hong has put to be thrown away, just like Oh Yoon throws out his tape of his demo for his second album, the camera constantly shows Gamri's face clocking Chief Hong's reactions to it. Right. So her friends are oblivious and are like, why are you throwing away this suit? Gamri is watching him. This is the beginning of sort of the what I think is like really an extraordinary performance by Kim Sun-ho. We start to notice the expressions on his face, sometimes being at odds with what he's saying or how he's reacting to a scene, letting us know that there's more, there's more to, there's a there's a lot of pathos involved in throwing that suit away, even if he's not sort of saying it out loud. And she quick Gamri quickly is like trying to change the subject, right? She's like, oh, well, why would you give that? You know, when her friend is like, can I have the suit? Can I give it to my son in law? Why would you want to do that? Oh, let's get back to the suit,
0: right? Yeah, she's for sure clocking that that's not a, an acceptable resolution to this for him. Right. And she's he pretty- doesn't want anyone else to have it either. Mm. And not out of selfishness, but just out of everything that it represents. Right.
1: So, you know, I've, I will always be curious about how much Gamry knew from speaking with him or whether she just knew it intuitively and knew that something truly, you know, really... Traumatic happened to him and didn't push, but always kind of looked out for him, particularly when you think about their final conversation. And she's like, You have to, at some point, you have to live your life and stop thinking about.
0: Yeah, I would say that the amount that he expressed verbally would have been little to none.
1: Yeah, but she knows. Like, it, Of course she knows. Yeah. She knows something and she knows more than anybody else in the town. I mean, you, know, you know, I think Ha notices quite a lot about Chief Hong as well. But Gamry certainly seems to know him. If anybody in town clocks his emotions about things, it's it's Gamry. And this scene is sort of the first hint of that. Of course, it then moves into the hilarious old <laughs> ladies clucking <laughs> judgmentally at Haitians running outfit, which, you know, if any of us live in, in, in a city is something that like, you know, I probably see people running in like 10 times a day, but or less clothing yeah yeah or less clothing what i love about the comedy of this scene chief if we just talked about sort of the somber micro expressions that go through that pass over chief hong's face when talking about the suit Whoa, does his face go on a journey as they're talking about Haitian showing her belly button and being able to see the outline of her body and the leggings. He's just like, I mean, he's he's like both reacting to their them being judgmental. Like now we know he's lived in Seoul and has probably seen people running in this like all the time. Right. So he's trying he's trying to gently push back in Haitian's defense as sort of younger generation, be like, no, this is just how people work out now, right? But when they start talking about her belly button and stuff, he's just like, ah, ah, he, like, drops the soap. The grandmas (laughs) are like, I mean, Gamere knows what's up. (laughs)
0: 100%. Yeah. And he hasn't seen this. No, his imagination's running wild, man. yeah. (laughs) He's like, oh, so is she running in that? Okay, well. I'll just spiral that away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, imagine what was going through his mind later on when he was on the bike <laughs> and ran into her running. Yeah. Yeah, that brings us to whew, the party for the elderly. And wow, Jin, you are not in Seoul anymore.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Obviously, this is the bottoming out of of Heijin's character arc. I think it's really interesting that the public gatherings in this place are the nadir of both Haijin's arc because now she's going to start to swing up, right? And, mm-hmm. and increasingly become a more integral part of the community. But at the end of episode 14, this is also where Chief Hong is going to be Publicly, publicly humiliated and outed in front of the entire village by another outsider from the security guard's son who works with director Xi. And so this is, again, sort of this, this pu- pu- there is a public humiliation, and then there are consequences that have to be dealt with in the community. And I just think it's interesting that we have these two bookends for It's Asian in episode two, and it's going to be Chief Hong in episode 14 so again if we can just be very appreciative of the writing and the directing you have chief Hong walk up and he's taking photographs with a camera and he says that no he is not taking money for this job there are so many Different ways that Chief Hong with the camera is going to be paid off and the dialogue in the scene is going to be paid off later. So first, we will find out at Gamri's funeral that all of these photographs that he's taking is basically a gift for Gamri because she saw at somebody else's memorial photographs like that and wanted her life to be recorded in that way. So he's here at the party for the elderly taking photographs, I think, presumably for Gamry.
0: Mm -hmm, Just just like he later is in the flower field, et cetera. Even if somebody else asked him to do it, I still think that, yes, it would be for her.
1: Yeah, he's not taking money for it. So it's not like it's like for the town or for like the town newspaper or something like that. Right. Second, you have this moment where Haitian is like, don't take my photo. I value my portrait rights. And he's like, don't worry, I have high standards.
0: Yeah, but- she's trying to flex on him in a little bit, and he just slacked it down so I mean, hard.
1: Yeah, but the final scenes of this show are him and all of her taking photographs of them for their wedding. Mm-hmm. Like one of the final images of the show is that beautiful from a distant shot in silhouette of him bending down to set up the camera and she's standing there in her wedding dress and, and they're taking portraits together. And it's just like, if you were Shen ha Un writing that line, you must just be chuckling to yourself of how you're going to pay that off at the end. And the director just nailed it. It's just one of those things where
0: you're just like, oh, this is so good. <laughs> the way you pay it off, right? Yeah, I would have to walk away like giggling profusely if I had written that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then, but then the other thing too is the camera. What, I mean, one of I mean, there's many, many, many things that I love about this show, but the show is my favorite love triangle in all of television, and I hate love triangles with a passion. Hate
0: them. Hate them. Usually, the
1: cameras. The camera is. How he's going to save Director Xi when he almost falls off the pier, and is what they first bond over mm-hmm. is is his old fashioned you know manual camera with film rather than digital, and that is the like foundation for for the friendship right that Chief Hong eventually forms with with Director Ji, which has a again to Shen Ha-un's credit a life and substance of its own, and so. You just have all of these layers, right? Like this is a place where we are going to have significant ruptures with the community for both Heijian and Chief Hong. And and all of this symbolism and 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 things that we don't know or Shen Haun is going to pay off about Chief Hong with his camera. And you just I just sit there and I'm like, it's like a two-minute scene, be <laughs> I mean, it's like it's crazy. Beep Talk to me about the train wreck of Haitian sitting down with the villagers.
0: This is so painful on every level, from every point of view. i I mean, after we were speaking about this, I just couldn't imagine I kind of went back through a couple of times that stuck out to me in my life where I was thinking, oh my goodness, if either that person or that group of people heard. What I was saying in any given moment, I would just shrink into a hole and die. Yeah. She has no, it's like no filter. No,
1: no internal edit and no, I mean, we had, you know, we talked about this before the way for better or worse, things fly out of Haitian's mouth. And sometimes it's brave and it's a good thing and it busts things open emotionally here. You're like, It's not that it's not that most people haven't had those kinds of petty thoughts, right? Whatever they may be, it may not be specifically like the luxury brand of shampoo that you want at a grocery store or you're annoyed that the tile is cracked or there's a hole in the screen. It's just this piling on of unbelievably petty complaints that also happen to hit people in their weak spots. You know what I mean? Like, you know, she's saying, you know, she's saying this to Hajung in front of her frenemy, Nam Sook. You know, like all of the way that it plays out, you know, sort of the way she recoils at the food in Gamri's hand when the thing that Gamri prides herself on is her cooking and feeding people.
0: It's just so... Painful. Oh, a small town grandma's gonna feed you. Yeah, it's so unbelievably painful Um, and it also goes kind of right to the heart of you know the original montage and and pokes right at people's past and the things that they're already aware of in their own lives and just piles onto that
1: you know as you're watching it too it's really lovely on rewatch you know because for example when Yun kyung is so insulted you know like you came to my store and you didn't buy anything and instead of Haitian kind of like finessing that <laughs> be like oh i was just looking around and she just flat out insults her basically like well i just couldn't find it your podunk local store didn't have what i needed so i just ordered it online in front of everybody yeah and this is a woman who is already not feeling appreciated at home by her husband is pregnant with her second child right and and you just like what flashes through my mind is the compassion that Haitian is going to have to stoop down and tie her shoelaces someday in that store or i mean for goodness sake deliver her baby (laughs) but you know but it's just such a spectacular train wreck where you're just like oh my god stop talking it's like the kind of embarrassment you feel like while watching like the office (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know? Please, God, um, Michael, just shut up. Yeah.
1: Just, oh my God, stop talking. And all of it is so steeped in in, you know, class and and the urbanite, thinking they're better than the people who come from the smaller town. It's just exploiting all of these
0: divisions
1: that exist on the surface between all of these people.
0: The and, interesting thing about this, too, is how she can't get away from this she is not visiting she is not she's in a position now especially having opened her business it's not like she can leave she is just so stuck and and has she's going to be forced to face this she can't just run away and hide from it yeah
1: and it's not just social it's it's her it's her career
0: yeah she's alienated everybody yeah
1: and it's just wow. <laughs> what you know, one of the things that I thought was like a kind of an interesting detail on on Rewatch was there's this moment where when she first sits down with the grandmothers, Gamrie talks about, you know, just kind of acknowledging like, wow, you know, women women can be dentists now. <laughs> In our generation, we were so, you know, I mean, if you think about somebody who is Gamrie's age. And sort of like, no matter what country you're in, the the differences and the opportunities for women to be able to have their own careers and to to get that kind of advanced education. But when she has to deliver the baby, she's going to be depending on Gamry's lived experience Mm -hmm. as a woman when women used to have to do this for themselves when they didn't have access to that kind of medical care. And I thought that that was such an interesting, almost like, circle of, of of mutual respect eventually, or just sort of that there there was wisdom and value in all the different kind of roles that women have served, right? And so this medical professional, you know, obviously she's a dentist, is somebody going to have to lean on Gameree for her practical experience from exactly these times that Gameree is talking about at this party?
0: Yeah, which is in contrast to this sort of classism and elitism and i'm better than you because there are many different types of education and that's where along the way she sees oh well i didn't receive that kind yeah (laughs) and she's forced to listen to people who are are you know much more informed
1: there are some great details like when oh yoon and god it is so so i mean i honestly feel for both of them because i i It is a little bit uncomfortable how he just won't let, he's so desperate for validation. He will not let her out of the conversation to the point that she finally has to be like, I just need to go to the bathroom.
0: Yeah, it's it's Um, very uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, but what I think is so interesting is he's complaining about how annoyed he is that he came in second for top song of the year. If they could just cut through this discomfort, there is nobody who hates to be second more than Heijin. <laughs> <laughs> so, but some other great details, again, the details in, in Shin ha writing and how the details are often hugely symbolic of where a character is at in their character arc. Heijin, when she pulls away from Oyun and bumps into, as she always does inevitably, Chief Hong. And he offers offers her a bowl of that soup. And she, even more than she does with everybody else, truly says whatever she's thinking. And he he gave her an out. What, are you still on a diet? She's like, no, <laughs> I just don't. It's disgusting. It has dust in it, da, da, da. And she turns it down. In the final episode of the show, at Gamry's funeral, Chief Hong is going to offer her that same dish outside at a public gathering, probably cooked in the same way.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: Heijin is going to pointedly say, fill it up to the brim. Mm. And that, I mean, first of all, what could be more beautiful in terms
0: of honoring Gamri than? Oh, absolutely. Than than her food. I mean, it very well may have been her recipe. Even though she's not the one who made it,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it—it's uh, th- that—that is. I mean, I, I, we have just listed. We're probably like thirty-five minutes into this episode, and from the scene with Chief Hong visiting her house at night to all of the details in this elderly party scene, Shin Ha Eun is laying all of these ground, all of this groundwork in the details that if you pay attention, she's going to pay off all of them and all of them have meaning and significance and are going to let us know how characters have grown in these details right like just the fact that she says fill it up to the brim when here at this party at the beginning of the show she's like it's disgusting it was cooked outside and it probably has dust in it right you know and he won't even take a bite won't and like refuses it and he gave her an ouch could have just said she could have just said, I'm
0: on a yeah, diet. Yeah, I'm still on that diet. Sorry. Yeah.
1: And it's interesting. It's interesting the way she, even though he annoys her, it's interesting how frank they are with one another and how he is her lifeline in this town, even if she is uncomfortable, quote unquote, with him crossing the line. She, she confides in him things. That that even her lack of internal edit, you know, she she goes even beyond that with him,
0: and it's yeah she's projected onto him this idea that whereas she needs to distance herself from other people, and what she says, she literally will say anything to him.
1: Yeah, and you you know it's so funny because he calls her a fussy, a fussy soulite, (laughs) and he I mean he's you know now we know that is not just somebody who has never lived there projecting that onto somebody from the city he has lived in seoul he knows what people in seoul think about the kinds of places where he's from you know well
0: and he knows how he got essentially in you know forgetting that place Ah. in many ways
1: i thought i think it's so interesting too where he says why can't you look the other
0: way and see only the good things she is is he does that for everyone else and not for himself yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. I think I got to put my big girl pants on and we have to talk about this unbelievably excruciating public humiliation
0: of Oh Yoon, but also Hey Jen. This is so, I mean, what she says about him is obviously just leveling. I mean, if he could have fully disappeared in that moment, he would have. But the interesting thing is because what she specifically says at least in the English version is is that an excuse though if he had the willpower or talent he would have made it one way or another. And that is the most brutal thing to say to somebody because one it's just not true. Especially in creative industries. But it's not true you know of a lot of things especially when we find out later He's widowed and trying to raise a daughter. Like, at what point did you want him to be fully invested in this? He made a different and theor- and a better choice for what he was going to do with his life when he was faced with, you know, impossible situations. But to her side and to her point, she, what they don't know about her is the hardships that she's endured, what she had to go through with her own you know, not having money or not having support or whatever, and what she's saying right now is exactly what she did. Right, totally. she had the willpower, she had the follow through, she did whatever, and she made it as a dentist. So she's simply projecting that path onto other people. Right,
1: and, and you know, and not just financial hardship, but she, you know, raised herself
0: a sense. Of course, of course, yeah, that's
1: Reason, what I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, she, I, 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 it's just hitting me now. And, of course, the show makes this very textual in a later episode. But, you know, she essentially was Juri, a motherless little girl being raised by her father who's just kind of doing the best that he can. So, of course, she doesn't know that right now, right? Right. But And she worked her tail off and made it, right? Right. And, but, you know, that also... you know your ability to like. Of course, you have to be smart and you work hard. But you know, being a dentist to being a professional is, of course, very different. The fates are quite. The fates are far more fickle when it comes to artistic and creative endeavor. Absolutely,
0: the I mean, all the odds are stacked against.
1: And H. also has never been responsible for a child. And there's all kinds of sacrifices and compromises that you have to make whether you are a widowed parent or not when it comes to your own hopes and dreams once you're responsible for other human beings.
0: Absolutely. And unlike her father, and I think he actually, well, they both progress throughout the series, but unlike her father as a child, oh is taking better care of Jury than than her father took of her. Yeah. I mean, in a way, she was almost orphaned too. She lost her mother, you know, to death and then she lost her father to that grief that he couldn't endure until he just moved on to another relationship and yet yet they never kind of bonded or, or fixed what they had.
1: Yeah. What I think is so interesting though is how complex the series of events are. So for example, like in contrast to the famous Miss Bates scene in Emma, Emma says it, to miss Bates's face, where she basically says that listening to Miss Bates' talk is boring, and she says it to like an elderly, poor person in her town when she is rich and young, it has everybody at her feet, and so it's really kicking somebody while they're down, but she says it to her mm-hmm. face. it slips out. It's like one of those things like Hei Jin does so many times things there it's like a no internal edit moment. This is not that Hei Jin as many things as she said that were clueless, she never said anything to anyone's face as cruel as what she is saying now. Because even she, and, and that is something that Chief Hong will point out as mitigating the damage of what she did. Basically, her intent was never to say this to his face and was never to say it in front of the whole village. She's on the phone with her best friend. And when you're having a really crappy day and things aren't going well, that is who you unload to. That's who you say those things. As Chief Hong will later say, at some point, everybody talks trash about everybody else. Oh, sure. That is <laughs> that is just as much a part of living in a community as carrying people on your back. That's what humans do. <laughs> we talk about each other, right? And yeah, carry you home and then we talk shit about you. Both. Yeah, right. So there's that complication. The camera work and the editing also, now that we know, I think we had a little bit of a clue when we saw that suit hanging in Chief Hong's closet. Cameras on O Yoon, right? Mm-hmm. Then the editing focuses on Chief Hong's face. And at first, on first watch, maybe you were wondering, I wonder what happened to him in the past, because we saw that suit as she says this. But now, when you rewatch it, you know part of his reaction, of course, is for his friend and for his friend being humiliated in front of the community and his disappointment in Heijin, who he is, like it or not, emotionally investing in at this mm-hmm. point, right? But her words cut him too. She says, While the camera's on his face, living in the past when one's present is in shambles, that's only what cowards do.
0: Oof. And that, I mean, that's a brutal word.
1: It, It is a word that he will use to describe himself when he talks to director G. I'm not brave and honest like her. He will stand in that very place get punched in the face and be called a coward who hides in front of his entire village in sort of his worst case scenario of all of the things that he thinks about himself being said out loud in front of his entire community because he's hiding here. Mm -hmm. He's hiding here. He's this name, Chief Hong, right? I mean, the whole mystery of his name, when you hear his name in this place is what will trigger his
0: past being, you know, dragged out in front of everybody right because this man has been around him for months by the time you know they reach this place yeah and he had no idea what his actual name was and how he would be connected to that gentleman's past
1: yeah so i it's just incredible the writing and the editing and the focusing in on chief hong's face the foreshadowing of what Haitian says and I also think it goes to explaining. I mean, as you know, as I was saying, like I think that on at, at first glance, you could you could understand Chief Hong's emotional reaction and extreme disappointment in her for all of the things that make sense, both in her and on behalf of his friend. But what she says also cuts to the quick because she's saying out loud what he already thinks about himself. He was already earlier today. He was or within the recent past was looking at that suit and trying to throw it away. And later on, he'll say, like, I couldn't even throw it away. Yeah. Stuck in the past.
0: She's not just saying mean things. Mean things are bad enough. She's actually saying things that people already think about themselves, even if just in passing. Their own fears. She's expressing their worst fears about themselves and their lives. Out loud in
1: front of the whole community. Because Oh Yoon will say, Everything she said is true. Mm -hmm. So there's two things that are, again, the series of events and people's emotional reactions are so complex. What what the town doesn't see is that when Mi Son says, yeah, but unfulfilled dreams, like I feel sorry for him. Because unfulfilled dreams can really take up space in your heart. Mm -hmm. He Jin hears that. You see her face sort of soften as she thinks about that.
0: But, of course, nobody else sees that reaction. Right. And it's too late. The damage that she doesn't even, isn't even aware of is done. And it's interesting to see that conversation from both sides because Misson is not, she's not really invested in any of this. She's listening to her friend just totally pop off because, like you said, she's had a bad day or she's just frustrated. She doesn't understand you know, what's going on, doesn't want to be there to start with, doesn't really understand why she has to participate in all this. And so she is just, she's popping off in every which way, saying whatever she wants. And Misan is like the voice of reason, which then it's interesting to see that she's absolutely willing to hear.
1: Yeah, I think her shame when she walks out, Uh, she she still has a, a journey to go on in... In processing what has happened and making amends for it, she immediately feels shame. She doesn't like. She feels everybody's. It's quite dramatic. Everybody's eyes on her. (laughs) I mean, she is almost humiliated as in a different way, but as embarrassed in a different way than Oh Yoon. Right? Everyone's just staring at her, shaking her, shaking their heads at her. She. I mean, and most of all, Chief Hong. Like her one kind of begrudging lifeline in the town. But you, the acting by Shin Min Ah, you see the shame she immediately feels. And, and that is so, uh, that is not necessarily, I mean, again, if I'm just going to contrast it to Emma, Emma, when she gets into a fight about it with Mr. Knightley, like uh, at first defends herself and tries to be like, oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't a big deal. No, like Heijin he doesn't do that. Heijin never try. Never gets defensive and tries to say that what she said was fine
0: oh no yeah she knows She knows
1: bad and what i think is so like if we can just shift quickly to the fallout where oh yoon walks off and he's by himself you know chief hong has a lot of interesting to varying degrees close relationships with people in town you would say, perhaps, of course. I mean, you would say, of course, Gamri is who he is closest to, followed maybe by Ha Jung. Mm-hmm. But Oh Yoon, he calls him Hyung. He has several in depth. Although, of course, you know, even when Oh Yoon is trying to get Chief Hong to open up, he cl- he shuts Oh Yoon down. But Oh Yoon is at least somebody who's close enough h- with him to try. Right. In later in later conversations, but I don't think it is a coincidence that when it comes to being publicly humiliated about definitions of success and how you live your life, that Chief Hong is the one that seeks out O-Yoon to come to talk to him about it. And when O-Yoon is like, you know, everything she said is true, right? Like I'm pathetic and my career was a failure and I'm stuck in the past. It's Chief Hong who's like, who's to say that that's not success? right? You play music for people and they love to hear you. You're raising a beautiful daughter, and by the way, that is, Chief Hong is an orphan who lost his grandfather who is a sole caretaker, right? He has lost mm-hmm. the three, pe- three people in his life. So watching a father raising a daughter who lost a mother, that means something to Chief Hong as something that he would never take for granted in seeing the beauty
0: and importance of that, you know? Right. Of, of O Yoon putting his daughter first, essentially.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that conversation is between two characters who, even though O Yoon has no idea the depths to which these questions of regretting the past and success and how you live your life go, how far, how far they go with Chi Pong, these are two characters sitting there talking about at least on some level, what does it mean to live a successful life?
0: Yeah. And that's something I think that we all at some point have to grapple with. And I think has spurred, you know, the pandemic has spurred so many people to do it at the same time, which I think is unprecedented in, you know, in technological culture, if you will, that we've all kind of reached that point of, okay, what's actually important to me? What are the things I can let go of? Because we've been so kind of alienated from people in general, the the opportunities we do get, it's, okay, who do I want to spend time with? And who can kind of go? And it's really fostering and acknowledging those close relationships. And I mean, and that's just something that she did in the show. Shin ha the way she wrote it was just kind of to have everybody grapple with this in a certain way. And it's it's so timely.
1: Yeah. I mean, this conversation between O-Yoon and Chief Hong goes back to all of those big themes, back to Walden, uh, back to all of these questions of like the art of living well. Like, what does that mean in defining success? And yeah, I mean, to your point, Beep, if, if you were going to use sort of the language of this show before the pandemic many of us were like hey in the opening scene of the show running on our path mm-hmm. running on our predetermined path and now we've all been stuck in our cabins and that is when and nothing has worked out whether it's like you know working at home or all the plans you've canceled or the ways that you used to spend your time because it has all been interrupted and we're in this huge timeout it's like forcing us to in some ways, it is traumatic, and in other ways, it's good to think about it sure. and take that pause. But, like, what do I want my life to be? Because our because our straight and determined path of constantly running has been interrupted. So it's a, it is a time when a show asking these questions could not have come at
0: a better moment for anybody watching at home. Absolutely, because now it's forcing us it's not forcing us to do this but it's a good way to look at it that he has asked her you know why can't you just look the other way and only see the good and so that's us having to grapple with okay what is good what is not what can I keep or what must I keep what must I get rid of in in my life and it's so it's just it's cool the way that parallels I, I mean not that this is a cool time but it's neat that that parallels what we're all just absolutely forced to go through right now.
1: Yeah. So if we can cut to what I call Chief Hong's Mr. Knightley badly done Emma speech. <laughs> before he arrives, before he rings the doorbell in what what is it, like his 10th job of the episode as <laughs> a delivery man of packages, she to, to just pick up on what we were saying before in terms of the shame that Haitian feels, she's sitting there in what I find personally a very relatable moment, lamenting me and my big mouth
0: mm-hmm. And her shame initially is one hundred percent about her, yeah, which I think is normal. I think right. that you know that is that is normal. and especially with what we know of of her motto, but so much of her journey, just even specifically in this episode. Is about, okay, wait a second. How did I affect other people? And right. what can I do about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, because she's, she, what she's doing is posting the employment ad for a hygienist. So when she's like me and my big mouth and is like freaking out, she is understandably, as somebody who's just moved to a new place and is opening a new business, freaking out of like, I have just screwed myself.
0: Yeah. 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 So societally, financially, I mean, she basically just did everything that she had done in Seoul. I mean, she just blacklisted herself in yeah. every area. Yeah. So, so but then when she comes to the door.
1: What what I find so interesting about this is this Chief Hong has a lot of things to say in terms of giving her advice about how she should act or interacting with the community. But what I find so interesting about this and why it really sort of, particularly on rewatch kind of raises your antennas about how what she said about being stuck in the past and being a coward really seemed to cut him to the quick Mm -hmm. is this speech to her while absolutely has a lot of wisdom and is something that I think probably a lot of people in life need to hear, that not everybody's road, you know, just because you're successful doesn't mean that
0: everybody's road was like yours in in achieving that success. Sure. This is something a lot of people need to not only hear, but actually absorb. Right. And and reflect on and do something about it in their lives.
1: Yeah, but he delivers it in quite ace, quite impassioned. It also, even on the first watch, felt personal. Absolutely. And, and he does not let people in. I mean, that is the entire struggle of this series. And so I, I find it so interesting that what she said really struck him to the core, that he feels the need to respond to it. And ostensibly on the surface, it's about Yoon, But it's not just about Oyun. But then when you rewatch it, there is this really interesting layer of how much, of of course, and we're going to unpack it line by line, how much of it, of course, is all of the things that are the result of what Chief Hong has experienced in his life. But there's so many things that he says to her that he doesn't know about her life. And she just... I mean, she initially is like, I don't have to sit here and listen to this, but she does. And she (laughs) doesn't. She absorbs it. And she could have defended herself. And she doesn't. She just listens, takes it in, and doesn't fight back. And I think it's really interesting the way she absorbs this these recriminations from him. So first thing he says to her, you think you're better than everyone. Beep, do you have any thoughts about that, given the flashbacks that we saw of
0: Heijin in college? I mean, this is so difficult because on one hand, I think by her current actions, that that's true. That's a fair assessment. She She does act that way. Even when you go back to her dismissal of her original boss— now don't don't misunderstand me she was doing right and had integrity and that boss was horrible but kind of what gave her the right to speak in that way she she has no outward concern for for either a person's position or where they might be coming from it it looks like this is true but <laughs> but to think I mean, that she was kind of nerdy and dismissed by so many people. And her boyfriend, you know, throughout college was just an absolute piece of garbage, not only mocking her, but speaking down to her as if he were better than her. So I feel like she's come up in the way that she pulled herself up by the bootstraps it was not only. To a level of success financially, but it does go back to this class system and so she's talking you know and has already mentioned willpower and hard work she, she kind of does think she's better than everybody at this point because that in a way is the sips the system she was working within that's what she knows and she wa- I mean she's worked so hard to attain that. Absolutely. You know, to like be in a place where she's not going to have a boyfriend like that. To be in a place where the way people spoke to her in university, there's no way that she's going to receive that kind of treatment. Yeah. And what I think is so interesting, Beep,
1: is that with respect to the boyfriend, if you remember the scene that we'll see in flashback when she walks into the club, she, it, it, it it plays out a little bit differently, but essentially, she was in Oh Yoon's shoes at one point. Mm-hmm. She overheard her boyfriend talking to a group of people, putting her down when he thought she wasn't
0: listening. And this isn't even, that, that wasn't even who, that wasn't even essentially a stranger. No, that was friend. someone who is supposed to love her. And she's hearing it, yeah. So she has to know, on some level, how devastating this is.
1: Yeah, and so much of what he puts her down specifically for is just like he calls her pathetic that she only has a few pairs of clothes, like one pair of shoes. Like he's really, it's really about class and money and how many things she has, which is status. Yeah, it is so fascinating when you think about. How important clothes and what she wears and how she looks is how important that is to Haitian because it's like, you know, when she goes out and she buys that that pair of high heels and wears them no matter if they cut up her feet and give her blisters, it's to prove to like going back to that moment of humiliation. And so I Mm -hmm. think it's so interesting that this you think you're better than everyone is so complicated when it comes to Haitian because She has been in, that, in those shoes of humiliation like Oyun at the hand of somebody else, like as you said, that was supposed to love her. And so much of what she's done and continues to do is to prove him
0: wrong. Mm-hmm. And to percent It's all wrapped up in this idea in, in the concept of materialism and that that's how you have worth. Is the things that you have, because that's specifically what he was going after her for.
1: Right. And in contrast, you know, as we said, Chief Hong, who at this point is accepting nothing above just the bare minimum to get by. Right. And is like giving everything away because he lived the extreme version of materialism, which is like, you know, private equity or hedge fund, whatever he was working in, that that trading and that profit off of other people's money is like the most glaring example of capitalism, Mm -hmm. you know? So the next thing he says, you worked hard, got good grades, became a dentist, simple speed bumps. Okay. So much to unpack for both of them, right? So on the surface, This polar bear and this penguin, he's assuming he doesn't know anything about her. So he assumes, okay, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to be a dentist. And yeah, you have to study hard, but you know, she appears to be wealthy. She's looking down on everybody else. So he I think he is assuming that she has somehow had a different experience of how to get there into university than he did. When in actuality, both of them were either on scholarship or scraping by working tons of jobs just to be able to afford it. He describes it as simple speed bumps. Like We know that Chief Hong, even even as a teenager, had already experienced losing both of his parents and then his grandfather before he even gets to, to college, right? And has experienced, like, we'll hold off on everything that happens later when he describes going off a cliff. Okay. Heijin was orphaned by her mother and then had a father who she used to, after packing her lunch for school, cover with a blanket because he was passed out on the floor before she got herself to school alone and then had to put herself through university working countless jobs and, you know, literally eating sausages in her backpack to the point Right. I mean, it's the central like memories with director G as he was watching her from afar at how hard she worked and how much she overcame. So I think it's so interesting how, man, every line of this speech has so many meanings of everything the audience doesn't know, both about Chief Hong and about Haitian. Yeah,
0: and now we've got two unreliable narrators.
1: Yes, yeah, two unreliable. One is listening <laughs> and one is like talking, but there's, there's, there's so much to unpack about, about all of these lines because there are things that are both true and untrue because from Heijin's experience, she's like, yeah, and I overcame all that. and right. look who And look who I became. I am, quote, a top level elite by purely my hard work. Nobody gave it to me. Nobody helped me right? I did it on my own. And, you know, with such an example to, like, with such a role model and inspiring that director G is, like, emotional talking about how much he admired her, you know? Just one of the many ways where this love triangle is, like, honestly, the best one ever done on television because his relationship
0: with her really reveals so much to us about what she went through. It's interesting that... Shin Haun actually decided to bring into the story someone specifically tied to her past. It was really interesting to get not only kind of the face value story, you know, and flashbacks of what happened to her during college or whatever, but to have someone there to explain how she was seen through non-garbage eyes, if you will. It's complete contrast to her boyfriend who was just, ugh.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, what's, what's really interesting is, you know, Shin Ha-un gives the audience quite a hill to climb up in terms of, I mean, I think she does a wonderful job showing how multidimensional dimensional Jin is, but Heijin Jin begins the story with the audience at the bottom of her arc. Mm-hmm. This is where she is at her most judgmental and her most condescending. And we're on episode two. Mi Son is invaluable in humanizing Heijin. Jin. Because if somebody like Mi Son can be this lovely and silly and loving and just relatable in terms of watching two women be friends, then Haitian can't be that bad.
0: Right. Because she so clearly loves her and respects her and wants her around. And it's not just that, you know, we've been friends since middle school like she... No,
1: I know she's in a
0: bad position, but she picks up and just comes there like, yeah, you're doing it. I'm doing it.
1: Well, she's the person that when you just found out that your boyfriend was cheating on you and you're going to get in a cab and go, what, four hours or whatever and pay one hundred and sixty six dollars for a cab. Hei Jin is the friend that you're going to go see with mascara running down your face and just Mm -hmm. say, I'm moving in with you and I'm working with you because my life is in a shambles. So that tells us a lot about Hei Jin, even while Heijin has just been at her worst with every, all the other characters in the show.
0: And Misan received no judgment in the sense that because it, it made me think because just how you said she comes in with like her mascara running. And another version of this, I can see Heijin like railing her for that. You know, you looked like this in public. You came, you know, yeah. And, and it's not about that. Not in her, you know. Not at her core. No.
1: Okay, so the next thing he says, I mean, she's basically like, "I don't have to listen to you, right?" Which is like a yeah. I I wouldn't I wouldn't enjoy this speech either. <laughs> I don't think anybody no. would. Right. Right. Although I think it's to her credit that the the, the the way she absorbs it rather than lashing out or defending or trying to defend herself is really to her credit. And these words are going to stick with her. At the end of the episode, she's going to be still thinking about what he said. He He's basically like, oh, so you freely judge other people's lives? But <laughs> I mean, you're a friend in what I assess you. And it's true. Yep. And so then she sits there and she takes it. Then this is the... This is the part where you are just like, now that you know Chief Hong's whole story, is just crushing. Life isn't so easy for all of us. Some spend their whole lives on unpaved roads, while some run at full speed, only to reach the
0: edge of a cliff. That hit in the real world. (laughs) so far outside of this story that's just one of those lines or or even this whole thing is one of those scenes where that cuts to my core
1: yeah i think one way or another most people have had can point to something in their life where you were on an unpaved road or you reached the edge of a cliff
0: sure and every time we have things that hint towards this judgment and and empathy and things like that I can I can never get the conversation from Ted Lasso out of my mind where he's talking about you know and it was in that moment that I decided you know I you don't know what other people are going through so the I would always be kind that's what I can give
1: right which is you know, the reason why we're walking, the reason why we're talking about these two shows hand in hand, because this is the entire structure of all of the mysteries in this show that Shen Ha'un has constructed and hinted at at the beginning of this episode from all of the villagers through Chief Honk is we don't know what is going on in their lives. And so casual cruelty, not being empathetic. Not, you know, not trying to put yourself in other people's shoes. Even the audience during this scene doesn't know the true meaning of these words for either Haitian or Chief Honk. Right. Right. The narrative structure in and of itself puts at the center, we don't know what has happened to these characters. And that is all she's going to write about. Because what she's telling us is, that is what is so important in your everyday life is to think about before you interact with people, maybe what they went through that day or what they've Mm -hmm. gone through in their life and to choose empathy and to choose kindness. And it's just remarkable to me. It's not only the subject that she's writing about, it is how she chose to write. Because how many, you know, there's so many shows (laughs) that put mystery Right at the center of it, right? Whether it's like a crime procedural or sci-fi or, you know, lost, you name it, right? (laughs) That that makes the, the big reveal, the mystery, the puzzle box show. This is a puzzle box show where the puzzle is only what happened to these everyday people in their lives. That we that they don't know about each other, and therefore is driving them to say things or act in a certain way and also for the audience watching them. So you may think things about hajian and Chief Hong and the way the things that they say or the way that they act on first watch of this episode. But when you go back and rewatch it and know their full biographies, you will understand why they reacted in certain ways or their motivations for the things that they're doing in a different way because of the way she structured the narrative.
0: Oh, absolutely. And th- the way that it happens, you can tell as we go along you find out the basis by which everyone's actions are formed and the and the things that that have been so crucial in that development but you can also see when they start to take these things into consideration for themselves and how that informs who they can become yeah
1: <sighs> so it's just truly a r- it was it always i mean his speech uh, always just the way it was delivered, you knew that it was intensely personal and impassioned, but the writing of it, it's just this, like, it is both so specific to these characters and yet universal in its wisdom.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So then we move into Heijin is, like, basically walking around with a scarlet letter. (laughs) She is publicly, no one will engage with her People won't talk to her. They run the other way. Point, you know, Nam Sook is pointedly asking, running towards the store, asking for shampoo, right? They remember everything she said, and they are going to punish her for all of it. And what I think is so interesting, in parallel to the flashback that we'll get at the end of the episode, Chief Hong, again, notices how sad hye is. Mm-hmm. So she's crying with her friend and he is distracted from what he is supposed to be doing and watching her. And he can't help but try and do something about it, (laughs) which is exactly what he did as a little boy. It's exactly what he did as a teenager, you know, and as we talked about last time, all of these flashbacks, all of their past interactions have these two core core attributes in common. One of them
0: is in a bad place and the other chooses to do something about it. I found it very interesting that that when she is walking around her own on her own, obviously, like everyone is either trying to ignore her, even if she kind of wants to just say hi. But like you said, Namsuk ran right by her. I found it very interesting that the thing she said was that she wanted shampoo, but not that cheap country stuff, Mm -hmm. essentially. And it was like, huh. I just, I kind of clocked it in my mind of like, are you still trying, are you still trying to win Haitian's approval in some way? Not only indicating that I am high class, but also that you can get these things from this mm. grocery store or this place that you've rejected as, as just having nothing worth buying.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think, so if we want to move to the bike conversation... Chief Hong finally gets to see Haejin in her running outfit for himself, uh, um, <laughs> I, and he maybe internally is having a biological crisis about it. But Chief Hong is—he's you know again pretty good poker face. But he, he, what I love about the way that he opens up this conversation, <laughs> in just this continuing, you know the 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 polar opposites, the magnets are flipped up and keep bouncing off of each other. At this point, he's like. Yeah, so I was thinking you probably, you're probably mad at me for what I said the other day. So you know how I'm going to start this conversation? I'm going to tell you how to dress. I'm like, go, dude. <laughs> it's just like, all right, you're probably still mad at me. So I guess I'm just going to double down. And, you know, it's just like, <laughs> I mean, he gives, he, he rides such an interesting line with this, right? Because every time, ta- whether he is with the grandmothers or he's with Heijin, what he's acting as is a mediator and representing the other party's point of view. Right. So to the grandmothers, he's like, look, that's what people my age, you know, and like soul, that's what they wear now to exercise like, you know, and the grandmothers like, you know, are not pleased with him when they don't take his side. But he with with Heijin and you can understand, like, I'm like a 44 year old woman. I don't I if I were running and somebody in their 70s has something to say about me wearing leggings, I would not appreciate them telling me how I should dress. But he makes the point. Be like, look. Yeah, totally. It's old fashioned. You're the one
0: who chose to move here. Mm -hmm. So now you're in their community. You have come to my home turf. Yeah. So you. And things just run a little differently here. So
1: he's like, so meet him halfway. And what is so interesting and why the show is so subtle, she doesn't say anything. But the next time we see Haitian running, she's wearing a baggy T-shirt. Yeah. So she's still wearing leggings, like, right? It's like a compromise. She's still wearing leggings because she's going to wear leggings to run, but she's going to wear a baggy T-shirt over it as kind of what Chief Hong said, meet them halfway. And the show is so, you know, never forgets these details. They're not going to hit us over the head with it. It's just going to be something that happens organically that you can you can either note or not as a, as the audience, but, but the show's keeping track of it, right? As these signs of, of Haitian's, Becoming a part of the community and and being changed by it, you know, not completely, but she's becoming a member of the community and compromising
0: well, and I love to see the way that this episode is subtly showing kind of the different ways that he acts with her versus other people, because we've already talked about she will say anything to him. I feel like she would have said all of the stuff that she said on the speaker directly to him were anybody else not, you know, not watching. But the interesting thing I found about these two exchanges was he did not give anything whenever he was talking to the grannies. He just defended her. That's how it is. It's not, you know, a big deal. She's not doing it against you. It's fine. But when he comes to her, he has a more nuanced approach of Hey, maybe there's a little bit to give here. Yeah.
1: And he, I mean, all of it, all of it is he's a member of that community. All of the choices that he makes to help her from giving her advice unsolicited or not <laughs> about how she runs what she wears, which, you know, maybe on first watch, if you're a feminist, you're like, dude, you don't have to listen to him about what you wear. But when he, but, the, but the perspective he's coming from is you're the one who's you're trying to win these people over as your clients. And I'm I as a member of the community I'm telling you, you're going to have to meet them halfway on this, whether we agree with it or not. And the everything that he does is basically to help guide her as a member of the community because he knows them best.
0: But it's- it's, It treats this entire, it treats Gongjin, again, as a character, because what it's doing is the story builds it as a complete ecosystem. And so, yes, you might have, you know, initially be like, I cannot believe they said that to her. But when you later think it, of it in the context of this community as almost like, like a place of business, you know, or a school. Like, there are dress codes, there are rules. And here, I feel like it, you know, that's demonstrative of just the culture. Like, hey, that's fine, and it's fine in general, and I'm not even, you know, coming at you for it or saying that you're wrong. It's just, it's really not going to work here.
1: Yeah, like, it is about when you join a community and when you choose to there's going to be part of living in a community is that you have to live with other people. Yeah, and that requires compromise. And that requires compromise. What I also think is interesting is there there is this poignancy now to Chief Hung advising Hei Jin and saying things like, we all make mistakes. Because he is guiding her on this very kind of small stake. I mean not big stakes for her business, but in terms of the harm she hurt she really hurt people's feelings. But but it's it, you know and, and I'm not not to say that it wasn't they're not justified in feeling that way. But when he's talking about we all make mistakes, his mistakes, the mistakes he is still grappling with are are high stakes. But he also has been judged and spoken to and blamed for things that are not fair. So the advice that he gives her, even even the small stakes within the world overall that Heijin has to grapple with in this episode, really has this kind of wisdom and poignancy to it now that we know the journey Chief Hong has been on up until this
0: point. Especially when the place he came back to hide has also heaped all of this conspiracy and controversy and gossip on top of him.
1: Yeah, he knows. I mean, when he's like, you know, they're all talking about us anyway, later on, episodes from now, when Heijin is like, so are you aware of all the rumors? He knows all of them. Of course he does. So, you know, nobody knows more about receiving blame, trying to atone for mistakes, and the things that people say behind your back or to your face that are not fair than Chief Honk. And so it's really kind of, I mean, I always was found it moving all of the ways both with her and to her. But the things he's doing behind the scenes to help her, I always found them really moving and kind of like, oh, God, I'm really loving this character.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> but I'm loving that she doesn't know it. All the time. Right. I mean, not, I mean, he does so many things to not receive credit, whether it's emotional credit or being paid. But, but there's just this real poignancy to the way he advises her through this small crisis that now we know is born of very, very high stakes life and death
0: mistakes. Mm -hmm. And what I love about the way that he, approaches her whether she knows it or not you know and and when I say approach I mean what he how he approaches what he's doing for her in in the background is that no matter what it seems that he might think about her you know that she's shallow or that she thinks she's better than people or, or whatever even without knowing everything that she's been through because of all the things he's been through he thinks that she's worth saving and the way that he wants to do that is not by running, you know, he doesn't want to run her off. He wants to assist her and help her integrate into this community because he sees that she could be an asset.
1: Right. And God, that's so lovely Beep, because honestly, who would understand more that somebody deserves a second chance than him? Even though he's not really truly willing to give it to himself fully.
0: I mean, he does and baby stops. Right, uh-huh. but it's, it is a gift he, he grants to other people with that, you know, with abandon.
1: Yeah, but he also does it. One of the things, and this just occurred to me, the way that he does it is so that the person that he is helping is not in, indebted to him. Meaning, whether it's the groceries that he buys to bring to the town meeting for Hei he's like, you're going to pay for it. And, and, you know, there's a lot on this, cert, right? I mean, he's like, yeah, you're, you're wealthier. It's, it's your thing that you're making up for. Why shouldn't you pay for it? Right. But also, it's, if she pays for it, it keeps her at an emotional distance because she's not indebted to him for it. Right. We're square. We're square. Same with the shoe. Mm-hmm. Ah, I found it on the street. What she, you know, if she knew that he rescued from the ocean, went on YouTube, did it yourself to like do oh, let me have, you know, spend freaking days rehabilitating her shoe, she would be indebted to him. Right. So he oh, he is helping her, but always in a way so that they are square and to keep that keep her at an emotional distance, because at some level, he is uncomfortable with how uncomfortable she is making him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's trying to shut it down because his life is, is not it is not about the future. It is not about opening up yourself to people. It is not about having relationships. It is about keeping people at a distance and atoning for the mistakes in his past. And That is what his life is. If we want to talk about sort of like, just to pick up again on Chief Hong throwing this, trying to throw the symbol of his past in the garbage, what he finds is Yoon's cassette tape in the trash. And there's a, Beautiful parallel that we actually won't know until many, many episodes from now is we won't know that just like Chief Hong rescues the tape from the trash so that he can turn it into a digital file and o Yoon can then go on his own journey of reconciling the past with the present and the future, Chief Hong also doesn't throw away that suit. And so there's just this like, he's clearly processing. His own relationship with the object that represents his past, as he is doing this for Oh like I think he's going to regret this.
0: And the way that he does this for people, I like the way that this is used. He, he needs, to some extent, Hajin's support later with this, but it's it's cool that they have shown along the way. By the time you know he's having to really reckon with himself, that he's learning to do. Or learning to accept for himself the things that we've already seen him do for others. Yeah, he doesn't run and give that you know file to to Oyun right away. He kind of sits on it. He he mulls it over and he waits for the right time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting to see, and you know, from my perspective, that we've seen these little actions from him all the way through. And they're they're simply demonstrative of the things that he needs to learn to do for himself and to allow himself to experience. So that brings us to (laughs) Chief Hong showing up to point out specifically that this rice cake business was no good. That's not how you (laughs) how you make amends to people. It was it seemed fake. It didn't, you know, appease or convince anybody
1: yeah and i mean granted there's two sides to this nobody offers her any grace nobody gives an inch but but it is correct his assessment i can picture it in my mind how insincere it was Mm -hmm. she does just kind of like sheepishly go in and be like Okay, thanks. Like, support my business. Cool. Here's a thing. Come Back away. Get it, Dennis. Yeah, she didn't say sorry to anybody, right? Like, it, his assessment without
0: having seen what happened is dead on. 100%. Yeah, she tries to just gloss over it. By doing a thing I feel like she might have done even if this didn't happen. You know, to give out things for just kind of a general marketing of yourself. Yeah, but So he calls her to a much higher cause, which is <laughs> as a member, especially a member, you know, a business owner in the community, she needs to go sit down at their monthly community meeting. Mm. And she will have to face a room full of people that she has disrespected publicly.
1: Oh, my God. The way he puts it, if you can't pick up spilt milk... Apologize for spilling it. Hmm. And it goes to the opening line of this episode. There are moments in life that you will regret. Right. The last person that we saw was Heijin staring out the window at the ocean of an empty office with no clients. So, what she has to do is apologize meaningfully, face them. It is excruciating. And he brings her there. And then he's, and then it seems like he's just going to leave her on her own. I love the, the way this show balances how much they do for one another while these characters also have to stand on their own two feet. So whether in the first half of this drama, as we talked about in the last podcast, it's Chief Hong guiding He Zhen through becoming a member of the community, there are still many things that she has to do on her own. He is helping her, but he is not saving her. And in the second half, when it comes to Chief Hong emotionally opening up and facing his past and reckoning with what has happened and moving on, she is there for him, but she is not saving him. He has to do it. He has to have those difficult conversations with his with
0: his friend's widow and and this and the security officer's son. They they offer to each other support, not salvation. Mm, exactly. So well put.
1: Yeah. But what she doesn't know is he's sneaking off to go buy $100 worth of snacks. I mean, this guy, this guy, meet her, meet her, dissect squids to pay for a $4 coffee. And he just goes and buys $100 oh. worth of snacks without asking her. It's incredible. The audacity, it's so amazing. It's like, I don't know if he just got like he's like i got carried away and i don't know if he just got you know it's also kind of sweet because it's like he's just trying to make it better
0: right <laughs> anything he can do to to prop her up
1: yeah i mean it is kind of it's kind of adorable that this guy who counts change out of his purse down to the cent, is he just went on a hundred dollar shopping spree at
0: the grocery <laughs> for like chips yeah. <laughs> i mean That's a lot of snacks.
1: But it also is, it's also so savvy and tied to the community because he he buys at a local business, the business she insulted, all of the snacks for the community meeting where she's going to have to sit down around a table as an equal with everybody else and face them. If there was any series of acts that would address head on what everybody is thinking about her in terms of not being sorry, in terms of thinking that she's better than than everybody else, symbolically what she has to do at this meeting, it's like it addresses all of it head on because she's sitting down as an equal with all of them and offering these snacks and food as an apology for what she did at the last gathering
0: hmm. And he does. I mean, he makes a pretty suave move by saying, hey, uh, she asked me to go get these. <laughs> so amazing.
1: I, and he and he and he basically kind of guides her. He's like, you know, she was nervous. She was in a new place and she made a mistake. hmm. And he is here publicly. But what happens off camera also that we know based on when Yun Chul calls him later is he is lending her his credibility in the community because he's standing up in front of that whole meeting and saying, look, she made a mistake. So he's signaling to everybody. It's time to move on, guys. And I'm backing her. I'm standing next to her shoulder to shoulder, and I am the one that is helping her apologize to all of you.
0: And he's doing that as a leader in the community. Exactly. And then he's going to fill
1: her office behind the scenes with all of her first patients. Again, because he's a leader in the community and it's so beautiful, right? Because this community and that leadership in the community is the result of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours that he has spent clawing back his own self-worth and all of the things that he's done for them in co- in atonement for the mistakes he's trying to make up for. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that they play with the way she grabs his arm instead of instead of a lot of times i feel like it's the guy who grabs the girl's arm mm-hmm. she's grabbing him and he's and he's kind of like it's so playful he's cuz because i think you can tell that he's kind of delighted by it even while he's calling her out on it like what you're not leaning on me, are you?
0: Right. You know, and like <laughs> you're not showing weakness, are you? <laughs> right.
1: And then the way he does, I mean, they're playing with so many tropes, right? Like the music gets all twinkly and a kind of a slow motion. And you think when he's going to hand over the receipt, you think that he's perhaps nervous because you're like, uh oh, are there maybe like feelings here? Mm-hmm. And th- And there are but what he's nervous about is he's about to hand her a tab for a hundred bucks <laughs> or I'm sorry, the equivalent of one, but like a hundred, the equivalent of a hundred dollars and basically be like, oh yeah, and you have to pay for it. And I didn't ask. <laughs>
0: like, oh my God. He's basically like, I did everything that I knew you couldn't do but I know you have money. So I have given of myself so that you will be forgiven. Now I need to charge you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. But like, but also... I mean, it picks up on so many things because she's basically like, she initially says thank you, but then she basically takes back the thank you and it's like, don't invite me to things ever. They go right back to bickering, right? Oh, I mean, of course. Their bickering is so entertaining that when they propose to each other while descending into bickering over who's doing the proposing, I was like, God, it is so them. And all of it is like built now, right? He's basically like, Yeah, so you owe me the money. She's like, Don't invite me to anything ever again. And I'm not grateful. And he's like, Okay, cool, noted. And he's like snickering as he like walks away. And it's so like, they're not obviously like drawn to each other and definitely not always getting along. And yet you can tell how much from the acting they are showing that both characters are like enjoying it is probably not the right word. The show does such a masterful job at the slow burn where they kind of are like, it's almost like a pot of boiling water. And it's like they turn up the heat, starts to bubble over, turn it down, turn it up a little bit more, turn it down. But they don't, they don't drag it along for too long, right? It kind of reaches, I'm going to mix my metaphors, but it reaches this like fever pitch. And then mm-hmm. they finally go for it in episode 10. And then after that, they're not going to mess with, in terms of the feelings, the feelings and how these characters feel about each other is like sacrosanct. There may be things that are real life obstacles and things that they have to work through, but once they're hand in hand, that's it. So it's just really like, a, a big picture wise, it's like a masterful, like this is like the step along the way where it's like, ah, they're paths keep crossing and they seem to kind of enjoy it even when they really don't (laughs) while it's going on. I can't believe how much Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha makes me feel nostalgic about people picking up trash in (laughs) yellow, like, safety traffic reflecting suits.
0: Whereas we mostly see people in the United States doing this when it's a forced community service. Oh, I know. they are choosing... To keep their own town clean and, you know, to keep it up so that that's something they can be proud of.
1: So can I tell you, though, I I so feel for Haitian in this scene because even though I live in a city, we have neighborhood organized like weed pulling and trash picked up in our like alleys. And it's always on like a Saturday morning at like 830 a.m. And
0: you're like and when you finally don't have anything to do
1: when you finally have the opportunity to sleep in. And then and then it's like you get all the reminder emails and you're like, oh, I have to do it because they're your neighbors. So you have to face them. Right. This is this push and pull that I think the show does so well about celebrating everything that is wonderful about community while also acknowledging that people in your community can often annoy the heck out of you. And sometimes there's things that you don't feel like doing, but you have to get up and do. And Chief Hong is so annoying in ringing her doorbell and being like, I know you're in there and pulls out a thermometer to prove that she's not sick, which I love because she's going to totally like they're going to totally flip that on its head. He's using the thermometer to force her out of her house to go do this thing she's later going to use a thermometer to force her way into his house to take (laughs) care of him when he's sick. To prove
0: that he is sick versus...
1: Right, right. And to force her way into his life, whereas he is forcing her out into the community. But he's doing it as annoying as it is to her. And as much as I empathize with her when she's stamping her feet and being like, but I want to sleep. He's doing it because he knows... Because as a member of the community, he knows how important it is for her to show
0: her face at this event, given what she's trying to do with her business. Mm -hmm. This is essentially the make or break because it's the follow up opportunity. It's the place where you put your money where your mouth is. She apologized, she did her thing, but okay, now are you going to come out here and be equals with us? Or are you still thinking you're better than everybody?
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. She has to like, shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder sweeping with everybody. It's so hilarious how annoyed she is with him. He's like, are you sweeping? She's like, can you just see that I'm sweeping? Like, it, it's such, it's not enemies. It's not The trope is not enemies to lover. It's like frenemies to lovers <laughs> <laughs> in this show. And it's just so entertaining. All of the ways that Shin Nina and Kim Sun-hoon just seem to be able to nail every stage of this relationship of acting it like the chemistry from being annoyed and the banter back and forth to everything that we're going to see later on. But it's kind of fun to take us back to like when Chief Hong and Miss Dentist really annoyed the heck out of each other. Beep, do you have any thoughts about this wrap up conversation between Chief Hong and O-Yoon and Oh yoon kind of finding his new balance of how he's going to grapple with the
0: present? I mean, I, I love this because I think this is something in a way that we all have to do. I, I don't know anybody that hasn't had a certain dream or a certain set of things that they would want to happen in their life, and that thing or those things didn't happen. And I don't mean, you know, everybody to like, nobody achieves their dreams. I just mean there's there's always something that you didn't get to do, even if you find yourself successful by your definition in 99% of ways, there's something. And obviously to him, it's, it's bigger. I mean, it was a dream of his entire, how he thought his life would play out. The balance that he has to find is acknowledging that all of that has happened and it's led him to where he is right now. And he can't change anything that's happened before this. He can't pick up his spilt milk. So The issue that everybody runs into with this kind of thing is you are now in the present and whatever you would like your future to look like, you cannot start from the past. You have to start from wherever you are. And you might not like that place, but that is the only place from which you can function. And so it's good to see him start to realize like, okay, I have been stuck in the past. I am not only reminiscing over this moment when I was, you know, when I almost made it and and trying to push that on, you know, Hey Jin and here look here's new somebody new I must get this acceptance of how I was like once famous or almost famous or whatever it is he realizes he's been stuck in a place where what he's been reminiscing on more than anything is how it all fell apart.
1: Yeah, what I love about the way that it is the director frames it and edits it, you have the digital file of his past dream on the laptop and the desktop background is this beautiful picture of Juri as a little girl. So it's the old dream side by side with the new dream. And then Yoon is talking about, and I have to focus on her dream, which is to become a fashion designer and send her to school for that and how part of being a father is reconciling your own dreams represented by that file that his friend has created for him alongside the people that you're responsible for and their dreams. And one of the ways that he's going to do that is he's going to roll his sleeves up and barista Chief Hong is going to teach him how to freaking make coffee because he has a cafe and he doesn't know how to do it. That brings us to Chief Hong. Fishing like a 21st century Henry David Thoreau on the top of the rocks, alone in the wind, on the ocean, literally holding Walden in his hands. (laughs) If You listen to our first podcast. I'm like, this is the moment I've been waiting for as like a Thoreau
0: nerd. (laughs) Come on, it's near impossible to see the connection.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So. He is, he is, what I think is lovely and what ties with the flashback at the end is he is fishing, which was his grandfather's profession. And so not only is it, of course, you know, as we talked about, something that Thoreau wrote about and and did a lot at his time on Walden, but it has a, you know, and it's out being in nature and he's obviously being contemplative. it, It has a biographical tie to his beloved grandfather. And, I think it's, you know, the way the director frames it, he seems so solitary. Doesn't it seem just so lonely just sitting there on the top of those rocks?
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that he's shown specifically outside here because from what we've seen, the little town is like kind of jumping. And yet he's found this space to essentially accent and just show even more how really alone he is.
1: Right. And when when Haitian asks where he is, oh is is like, oh, it's like the mudflats. Like, do you know where that is? You know, it is removed. Right. Like it's like the boat on the hill or these mudflats on the ocean. He seeks out being completely solitary or like on his day of surfing, you leave me alone. I'm not going to interact with anyone. Right. It's like this is what he carves out for himself. We mentioned before all of the reasons why holding that book, Shin Ha-Un said it's, you know, it is both a biographical and thematic clue to Chief Hong and his story. What I love is that director yu Zhe Wan shows the book, and then after quoting the line, Chief Hong looks into the camera at the audience, then looks away. And is obviously deep in thought. I and mean, who knows all the things that, you know, what has happened with Jin and the things that she has talked about and the conversations they've had and how reckoning with the past and deciding not to throw out his suit. You can think about all the kinds of things that are going through his head. But, you know, in addition to the book, in his hand, Shin Ha-un has, has seeded some questions that we should be thinking about. Oh, Yoon, why don't you accept a raise? Heijin, what is your deal? Right. So so there's all these little clues that that all are tied up with the book that he's holding in his hands. We cut to Hei Jin looking out at the same ocean and thinking about what Chief Hong said to her about people's lives going over a cliff. And when me, you know, they're so adorable and how excited they are <laughs> and how well the clinic has been doing. But when me son asks he Jin why she thinks their luck has changed, she immediately knows that the person that she owes a debt of gratitude is um, gratitude to is Chief Honk. Mm-hmm. And the thing, what I think is so interesting is in their first meeting, what he gave her a hard time about was the fact that she didn't say thank you. <laughs> So we we already have we're about to have two huge scenes for Haitian that show the growth that is already happening with her, like how she's already being brought out of her shell and being changed for the better by this place. And the first is when she bumps into Oyun and she could have just, you know, he clearly doesn't want to have a conversation. (laughs) So. But she chooses to face him.
0: Big change from earlier in the episode when she was like basically trying to disappear under Nissan when they were walking through the the town and everybody was ignoring her.
1: Yeah, and what she did is she listened
0: to the CD that he gave
1: her. Mm -hmm. What could mean more to him, right? I mean, mean, even if she had said oh yeah, I remember you from soul back then. She listened to his music. She's talking about his art now, Mm -hmm. like it still matters. And she doesn't take the easy way out. She actually is very honest and is like, I don't really like your big hit that much, but I listened to this song, which sounds Blue Scar on My Heart, which if we think about Hei and sort of all the sorrow in her life, we can kind of imagine maybe what that song is about. She actually listened to the words that he wrote and the melody and comments on it substantively and chooses another song out as the one that struck a chord with her. And you just see the way he lights up because what's more meaningful than being remembered in the past for something you did it's a song that you wrote touching somebody now. Mhm.
0: Yeah, it has a legacy. Yeah, that's burning on. And it she's approaching him through his language. Mhm. Which is I mean I want to say really like his love language. When when he receives any sort of affirmation about his music, that means more to him than anything. And so for her to make that connection on her own this time Chief Hong didn't say, hey, maybe you want to listen to that album and then go actually talk to him. In fact, he didn't address O-Yoon at all when it comes to, you know, trying to give her advice. He's given her this life advice to mm-hmm. hopefully be able to apply on her own. And she does. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome.
1: Yeah. And and what she gives to Oh yoon is he then, he at the end of the convert, after she walks away, he puts cigarettes away because he says a singer truly shouldn't smoke. Mm-hmm because he's he's still a singer in the present, he his music, somebody still listens to it, somebody still appreciates it, thinks about it, and talks to him about it. And so what she gives him in the end, honestly is way more meaningful than had she remembered him in the past absolutely and then what is really <laughs> what she needed to say and kind of goes toward everything that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast about meaningful acts. I am truly sorry for what I said that day. That is a heartfelt, simple apology.
0: Yeah, she doesn't try to explain it away. She doesn't try to excuse it. She doesn't try to defend herself. She knows she's wrong. She's approached him in an authentic way and she just owns up to it. Right. So this
1: episode ends with Heijin once again at the bottom, (laughs) this time, last episode was the bottom of the hill, now she's at the bottom of the rocks. Every, both of them are these like symbolic, are are, like symbolic of her journey toward, I think, toward not only like her, her future, but specifically her relationship with Chief Hong. He is alone and aloof and remote and at the top of a very rocky path. And she's pretty determined here. Like she seeks him out. She says what he has been waiting to hear sincerely from her from the first time that they met as adults to say thank you. She, he will later say when her father kind of acts similarly that one of her character traits is that even when she's wrong, she's quick to admit it and she apologizes. And here she marches right out to the person that she knows that she needs to thank. And he is so. She Like, I feel like she's so speaking from her heart here, and he's so aloof, right? hmm
0: I'm going to feel zombie.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm not ready.
0: <laughs> so at the end of the last episode, she's walking uphill toward him, unbeknownst. In this episode, she's walking up t- uphill toward him, full well knowing what she has to do. And in the last episode, she's walking uphill with him.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right it's so everything is so intentional and it's so symbolic of the way they have the way that at the beginning of the story how they're apart or how they have to deal with kind of their path in front of them to each other and now they have somebody to walk uphill with together mm-hmm. i know Ah. Uh. I mean, yeah, you. I, this is what beep does. What I he's, I, I, I feel like this is a very intentionally. You know, everybody went nuts when this scene aired, and it's like so. You know, the swoon and him catching her on the rocks is like now such like an iconic image from the show. But I feel like the symbolism is very intentional. So all of the parallels that we that we have just talked about, but also. She is she is on rocky footing. She is brave and going to attempt it, even though she's wearing heels and she's going to attempt it anyway, because even though he is not making this easy for her, she has things that she needs to say. Right. And and he is aloof in his words, but he is still He is going to be just beyond her reach, but he is eventually going to not with words, but he is going to reach out his hand and she is going to take it and she's going to lose her footing and he's going to catch her. And there's a quote from Thoreau that I think ties up with a lot of the symbolism that Shen Ha'un is playing with as well. The quote is, quote, the midst of this chopping sea of civilized life. Such are the clouds and storms and quicksands and thousand one items to be allowed for that a man has to live if he would not founder and go to the bottom and not make his port at all, end quote. So Thoreau is kind of playing with this this language of not only the sea being symbolic of of life and all of the challenges that it can present, which is some symbolism that Shin Haun obviously plays with as well. But here on this, this rocky shore, it's windy and you've got the ocean. She's like losing her footing. And Chief Hong is the one that catches her. But what I love is that there are three of those in this love triangle. So he catches her. He's next going to catch Director Zhi from falling into the ocean. And then Hei Jin and Director Ji together are going to save Chief Hong from falling off the pier on the night of the fireworks. And it is symbolic of what all three of these people, who are inextricably tied in ways that we could never have imagined at the beginning of this story, are all going to play such important roles in each other's life and you know, they are helping to save. Ultimately, all these characters have free will and make a lot of choices for themselves, but they all in supportive ways you can describe as saving each other, right? Heijin is going to be there for Chief Hong emotionally. Chief Hong today and in the beginning of the story is helped save Heijin's business and helped kind of establish her in the community when she really messed up. And at the end of the story, Chief Hong is going to help director Xi kind of navigate whether he's going to go for it and pursue his best friend and work colleague romantically. And they're all going to be sounding board and supportive for one another. And I love that the director plays with this kind of classic romantic trope, but he uses it interchangeably for both romantic relationships and friendships. And in purposefully with a love triangle, which is the last place where you expect everybody to be saving one another.
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And to be doing it without uh, (laughs) a lot of bitterness and ulterior motives.
1: Yeah. But I mean, you know, also, all of that symbolism aside, it is a classic. It is a. Classic romantic moment. I mean, I grinned when she falls into his arms and they're staring at each other, completely awestruck, while romantic Sunday kicks in. It is, we've been talking a lot about old dreams. This is the beginning of the new dream.
0: Well, you know that because of all the slow mo and cuts from different angles.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they just go for it, you know? That brings us to the flashback. We've talked we've we've talked about the flashback in a lot of different ways, how it plays a point of view and how you know that the, what they, what all of these flat what all of these meetings have in common. One of the details that I love is that the camera focuses on little boy Dushic holding so firmly onto his grandfather's hand, which is later what he tells Hatian one of the few concrete memories that he still has of his grandfather
0: that that's so real to have someone gone. Either when you're young or just the longer or just when it becomes so many years since they've been gone, they start to feel kind of like a a weird phantom limb, just a memory that you can't quite access.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you I think he meant he says, like, I I don't know if I can remember his voice, which is so Mm -hmm. real, you know, I mean, so that. There's so much we learn, right? You know, that his father was a fisherman. So you're like, oh, maybe now I understand the boat. You understand what he's doing in his spare time, perhaps, perhaps as an act of remembrance of, of being out in nature to feel close to his grandfather and fish like he did. And then, you know, he does, he does in this flashback what he did throughout this whole episode. She was upset and he makes her, he makes it better. Through acts, right? As a little boy, it was being silly and dancing and making her smile. Throughout this episode, it was countless acts, either with her or behind the scenes, to make things better for her.
0: Yeah. To smooth over essentially her entire life in this little fishbowl.
1: Yeah. You know, and we talked about sort of the in the last podcast about. This is the only time they have their entire biological family in one place. They both have a photograph of the very important people that they lost in their childhood because of their interactions with one one another. His grandfather is the one that took that photograph. And then that experience then prompts his grandfather to say, "Let's let's go take a picture right now in the studio. And... One of the things that at the end of episode 11, where we see the flashback of Heijin as a little girl coloring her memory of all of them on the beach, which she didn't know she was drawing, was a picture of her future husband and his grandfather with her mother and father. She wrote, The princess was crying, but the prince made her laugh. I hope she returns to the beach and meets him once again.
0: So that happened. (laughs) Ah,
1: I know. It's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. It's such a beautiful, the way a child would summarize beautifully such a simple act. You know, she was sad. He made me laugh. I hope I see him again someday. And yet so much, so, uh, you know, a meaning and a significance that she couldn't possibly understand, but it's expressed so beautifully and simply like as children do express such things like what a simple act to like make somebody laugh when they're sad
0: so that brings us to the end of episode two next up we're doing episode three which is a trip to Seoul and the return of the shoe that sounds like it could be A Star Wars movie.
1: (laughs) Return of the Shoe. Cinderella's going to get her shoe back and it's going to be it's going to be one of the many times that uh, Chief Hong literally brings
0: light, (laughs) lights things up. Yeah. So we'll be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, we hope you offer and receive the fruits and flower of people in your own communities. We'll see you soon.